0: Howdy, and welcome to your dog's best life. This is Liam. So, I know this is hard to believe because this has never happened before, but I got into an internet fight the other day on, well, the internet, and I thought I would kind of go over something I think is really important in that fight. A person was asking on a Facebook group how to stop their dog from digging, and I put out my suggestion, which is usually to give the dog a location where it's appropriate to dig, make that area enticing for the dog, and then actively discourage the dog from digging in other locations. And I'll explain to you the reason for that kind of methodology, but I think you guys can probably guess knowing, knowing what you know about me. Another person came in and was kind of snide and snarky and commented on my comment, just kind of to be a dick, and said, well, you know, dogs like to hunt through the trash. Why not let them do that? Just stop the behavior. And I thought, well, what an asshole. Dogs come with certain behaviors that are part of being a dog. And the idea that we simply disregard that and act as though it's not meaningful is, is offensive to me. Why own a dog? If the act of being a dog offends you, then get a cat or a plant so i thought we would visit today what it is to be a dog what what we know about dogs what we know about dogs versus wolves and kind of go through all of this so we understand what behaviors our dogs present that we have to accommodate or should accommodate ethically versus behaviors that maybe we can adjust or deal with so first we have to understand that dogs are a different species than wolves now I'm not going to get into all the, everything about speciation because there's a lot of blah, blah, blah in the the literature about it, but dogs and wolves both come from a common ancestor and dogs are now seen as a subspecies of wolf. There's still argument in that. Um, There are groups in science called lumpers put everybody together in big lumps and there are splitters who split everything apart. I know that from when I was in college. So there's my useless fact of the day from my college education. However, what matters here is that they are incredibly closely related to wolves. However, they are not wolves. We are not living with little teeny wolves in our house. They are a different species with enough genetic changes over time to have affected huge changes in their morphology, which is how they look and their psychology, which is how they behave. So let's kind of go back and look at what it is, what we've done, how humans affected wolves and maybe how wolves chose to affect themselves. Um, There's a little bit of debate about that and that's kind of fun. And what that means to Fluffy, who's sitting on the couch beside you. So first a little history, wolves and dogs split from a common ancestor We'll just call it wolf to make life simple, uh, about 20, anywhere between 14 and 30,000 years ago, there's a huge amount of debate because obviously if you imagine the first proto dogs would have looked almost identical to wolves and therefore they would have been very difficult to tell in the archaeologic record. The skulls would have been very similar. Uh, between a wolf and the proto wolf. And so until there's enough morphological differences between a wolf and a dog, um, scientists are going to be very, very hesitant to call a dog, a wolf a dog, if that makes some sort of sense. Actually, the, the, the moment of that split probably is very irrelevant for this conversation. However, it's kind of geeky and you know how I roll. So anyway, so what happened 14 to 30? thousand years ago is still shockingly under contention under a lot of debate because that's how scientists roll so there are two differing opinions on how we or wolves domesticated themselves and there is a difference so we're going to briefly touch on that I I know you guys didn't sign up for a whole day of archaeological coolness but that's again how I roll so anyway most other animals that we domesticated so when we talk about domestication we're talking about you know um cows and horses and sheep and chickens, oh my. The rest of them, you know, these species, the way humans likely domesticated these animals was we simply took young animals away from older animals, brought them into captivity, and over periods of long time, periods of time, they became domesticated. If you've ever seen those horrific videos of how uh, baby elephants are quote-unquote tamed when they're stolen from the parents in India. Um, that's probably what it looked like for early animals. Uh, so that's that's how we domesticate most animals. At least that's what the thinking is, and that makes logical sense. Again, we're watching the process theoretically of, of domestication of ele- elephants in India, and if That process is the process we used for, say, horses and cattle that makes logical sense. We would take a young animal, we'd bring it into our camp, we would raise it up, then we'd breed the tame ones to the other tame ones, and over time you get changes that those changes then become a new domesticated animal. And there is a vast difference between a tame wild animal and a domestic animal, Years ago, I read the book by Jared Diamond, Guns, Germs, and Steel. And one of the arguments that he made for why Africa was uh, not as advanced, their civilizations were not as advanced as modern or close to modern Western European nations, was that they could not, that people had tried to to tame zebras and had failed, whereas we were able to tame horses. And I've I've always found that very offensive because the fact of the matter is no one tried to tame a horse. A horse is a domestic animal. Taming a zebra is probably exactly what it looked like when we started domesticating horses. And it's not pleasant, and it's not friendly, and they're not fluffy. Years ago, I read The Art of Horsemanship by Xenophon, a student of Socrates, which was written about 2,300 years ago in Greek. He discusses how to tame a horse, train a horse, back, again, 2,300 years ago, which would have been about 2,300 years into the domestication process of the horse. And he discusses that the horses were removed from their stalls by two grooms one on each side, and the horse was muzzled. So that tells you a little bit about the process of taming versus domestication. So when someone like Jared Diamond, who's a very educated man, tries to tell us that there's a vast difference between a horse and a zebra, and and that you cannot domesticate a zebra, and that's why Africa was quote unquote behind, and I'm not going to get into that, uh, versus the Levant, which is up in northern part of Egypt area where they domesticated the horse, that's patently untrue. There is no reason to believe that if we gave zebras 5,000 years of effort that they would not in fact become horses as well. So domestication is a far different animal than taming. So how did this taming take place? So the first uh, method was the one I just discussed where we take puppies from wolves and raise them in camp as it were and then breed friendly puppies to other puppies and over time just like horses and sheep we end up with what we now call the dog. The other option. And this one actually I find really fascinating and kind of interesting is that wolves semi kind of semi-domesticated themselves. The argument for this particular thought process is that what would have happened is wolf, a wolf pack or several wolf packs would have found it opportunistic to hang out with small groups of humans as we migrated over the landscape 30,000 years ago or whenever. And over time, the wolves would have become scavengers. And this is an important key concept. So, so kind of keep this in mind because we talked before about wolves being kind of an apex predator versus dogs who are not. Um, they are not fully predatory, unlike wolves. So what would have happened is this wolf pack would have or several wolf packs would have followed the humans around and they would have learned to scavenge off of the humans as they migrated over their terrain because obviously this is all happening prior to the advent of agriculture, I believe. Uh, we did not create agriculture, I think, until about, uh, I'm going to guess, 10,000 years ago. Probably wrong. Who knows? Don't look it up. Don't quote me. Anyway, it would was far after the dog came into our lives. So as we're moving over the countryside, these wolves would have lived in, lived in close proximity to our villages, and the, the more bold of the wolves would have gotten closer in, and they would have benefited from that close proximity in multiple ways. The first way is obviously they would have access to the food items that we leave behind and or cannot eat. You know obviously we don't spend a lot of time eating bones, uh, sinew, things like that. They would have eaten that. They would have eaten fecal matter. Gross but true. Uh, Dogs. Hello. Look at your dog. Look at the Tootsie Rolls that your cat leaves behind and how enthusiastic they are about that. And that would have made sense because one of the things, again, we see in our dogs is this movement away from the pure carnivorous or more pure carnivorous diet of a wolf towards a more omnivorous diet like we have. So if they had self-domesticated, this actually really does account for that, that change over time. But let's get past that. I mean, that's fascinating and cool, but it probably doesn't have a lot to do with what we look at with dogs today. Fast forward to why we would allow these dogs, these wolves to hang out and camp. What's the advantage for us and, or what's the advantage for them? Well, obviously the advantage for them is safety from uh, the, out, the environment as a whole, um, competing other, other wolves, other predators out in their environment. Proximity to us would have, like I said, provided food items. Uh, an example of this is kind of fascinating. Is in the Americas, the United States, uh, where I live, we have a species of animal here called the javelina. It is a peccary. The best way to describe it is it's kind of a spiky little annoyed looking pig-like animal. They've only been living in the desert southwest where I live uh, in America for about 500 years. And the thinking is, again, scientists aren't 100% certain, but one of the thoughts is that this animal migrated up following the conquistadors as they moved up through Mexico and into New Mexico and Arizona looking for the seven cities of gold and, you know, to pillage and be assholes, but they left garbage behind because they're human beings and the javelina simply followed those trails of garbage up into the Americas and now they are endemic here and they live here and and they're a natural part of the environment now. It's fascinating. So anyway, we could see the same thing happening easily with wolves And back then we wouldn't have had that loathing that we have for wolves because our loathing for wolves today largely stems from the predation of our livestock. We didn't have any livestock because the dog is the first thing we domesticated. So if these wolves are hanging out by camp, think of the value they would have provided for us. The first is that they would have been great alarms. They would have told us if rival, I don't know, humans were in the area, if big cats were in the area, large bears, other predators, that would have been a danger to us or our children. Um, That would have been handy to have lying around as they became more and more domesticated uh, research shows that in Africa dogs who hunt with the villagers in um, nomadic societies that are still hunter-gatherers provide a huge boon I want to say it was something like they have 50% higher rate of success hunting with dogs than without that's huge that's massive that is the difference between survival and death so we these were very helpful animals to have lying around in camp and so let's look a little bit about what that means for what is a dog where does what is the what changes happened what what behaviors came along for the ride as it were why should we let our dogs dig holes in our yard Uh, don't even get me started so the first thing is let's look at the ancestral diet. There's a lot of talk about feeding our dogs raw meat or feeding our dogs this or feeding our dogs that for the ancestral diet. Here's the thing about their dog's ancestors. Your dog's ancestors are dogs and dogs are omnivores. So what they've discovered in recent studies is that dogs have a higher level and higher Efficacy for a chemical called amylase in the bloodstream. This is a chemical released, I believe, by the pancreas. Ah. And what it does is it helps break down cellulose in plant material. Uh, There are other uh, genetic changes that have over time allowed dogs to break down more and more cellulose as well. So, unlike wolves, dogs have a better digestive system designed specifically to break down plant life. Um, in humans, this is fascinating. And I just discovered this when I was geeking out on the other stuff, humans in, uh, westernized societies, which have, have a long history of farming actually produce more of these, have these genetic DNA markers as well. Whereas folks who continue to be hunter gatherers, they don't. So even in humans, we are discovering that we have different GI tracks based on what we eat. Fascinating and cool. Anyway, so the other thing I would have to say is I bet our dogs did not eat raw meat. Today when we process... Animals, we there are certain pieces that we discard, and of course in America we discard probably a lot more than we would have discarded back in the day when we kind of ate everything because the other option was starvation and death. But intestines and things along those lines, the things within the, the stuff within the intestines would have certainly have been considered not a food item. It would have been you know the awful and awful. How do you say that? offal offal poop. Okay pre-digested or post-digested uck from inside the stomach, inside the intestines. Yes, we probably would have used both of the stomach and the intestines for various things, but the actual uck inside of it would have been removed and the dog I'm sure would have eaten those. Other yucky bits would have been eaten, uh, ears, tails, uh, feet, things like that. The actual meat, the, the part of the food, the part of the animal that we tend to eat, the muscle. I strongly suspect that our dogs were never offered that. And had they received any of it, it would have been after we had already cooked it and eaten it. And fascinatingly, cooking meat actually creates more uh, digestible caloric intake. So it would have actually been beneficial for the dogs to have eaten uh, more meat or cooked meat. So, okay, there's your geeky another geeky factoid of the day. So where are we? Okay, so the other thing we need to talk about is wolves do travel in packs. And probably the reason that wolves would have been in the animal that humans would have chosen or chosen wolves would have chosen us is because wolves are pack animals. They they travel in in packs and therefore they have a, a cognitive and fundamental understanding of cooperation. And that fundamental understanding of cooperation still exists in dogs today. However, interestingly, it does not is not as effective dog and dog cooperation. So you won't see your two dogs cooperating with each other as much as say wolves would, but you will see the same level of cooperation from your dog towards you. Uh, that's another genetic change that we've put into these animals. That would explain say the difference between a dog and say a cat. Um, cats are always have always been solitary hunters and therefore they frankly don't need our input or really Much of anything from us except for petting on their terms and food when they demand it. When we look at wolves, wolves have what we refer to as the full predatory sequence. Uh, Again, you'll see that in your cat. That predatory sequence is seeking, so you look for the predator or the prey first, followed by eye, stalk, chase, grab, bite, kill, bite, and consume. That predatory sequence would have been complete in the early dogs that lived in our camp. However, we couldn't have that predatory sequence as elevated in our dogs as we have in wolves. Again, think of what it would be like to live with a cat if it weighed as much as your dog. You couldn't even have a toddler in the house. The cat would be eating it. Uh, So that predatory sequence had to be muted or was muted by the wolves themselves. Again, it's not a choice. This is genetic over time as they lived in proximity to human beings. When we see dogs, quote unquote, living in the wild. So when we see dogs that live in feral groups, uh, what we have discovered is that these dogs are no longer predators in the same way that wolves are. Village dogs, so dogs who live in villages and or feral dogs, which kind of live... In proximity human beings but are no longer members of the village. Uh, Those types of dogs have all become uh, scavengers. Pretty much they hang out in garbage dumps and people's backyards and they scavenge uh, much like coyotes do in cities today and what that tells us is that 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 predatory sequence is dampened in dogs to an extraordinary extent and then pieces have been picked out for specific breeds. And again, this is what we talk about breeds and I get geeky, but I want you to think about this because I have people call me a lot and they'll say my breed that has nothing and never ever herded in its entire life stalks my cat through the house. Therefore it must know how to herd. Well, no. Wolves would also stalk your cat through the house. However, the wolf would follow through with the rest of the predatory sequence and eat your cat. (laughs) However, you probably either told your dog not to eat your cat and the predatory sequence remains. And if it was out in the wild, it would follow through with the entire predatory sequence or the rest of the predatory sequence has been changed to some extent. So as an example, when we look at hound dogs, they are in the seeking predatory sequence. They seek and chase right? They look for the animal and then they chase it. The eye stock part is mostly gone. They're just sniffing, sniffing, sniffing. If you look at bird dogs, we had to remove the chase aspect, right? They seek the animal, But they don't chase them because otherwise we could never get close enough to our birds to shoot them. In in herding dogs, they don't need to seek. We kind of show them where the sheep are, but eye stalk has been massively heightened. Uh, Chase has been mostly eliminated and obviously grab bite and kill bite have been completely eliminated. All of those predatory sequences, however, are present in our dogs to some extent And then through selective genetic changes over time for certain breed characteristics, we've changed and modified those genetics. So when you've got a dog and you see these genetic pieces of this predatory behavior in the sequence, know that that came part and parcel with being a wolf. However, dogs also have the added scavenging behavior that we see now in modern uh, dogs living in village situations as feral and semi-feral dogs scavenging is a different behavior chain than predatory sequence scavengers pretty much spend their their day with their kind of nose at work looking for found objects they are not having to seek out things to hunt and kill And when we talk about that, that brings me back to my annoyed argument on Facebook. See, I circled back around. This makes sense. And the guy's saying, well, your dog goes through the trash. Will you just let it do that? And my answer, of course, is no, asshole. But I will allow my dogs, if they need to, to scavenge. Now, does that mean I let my dogs take my dogs to the dump on a regular basis and let them find? No, it means I allow my dogs to do scent work. Or I allow my dogs out in the desert to find whatever they want to find, whether it's rabbit poop or who knows their dogs. I'm not going to ask. This is a don't ask, don't tell sort of policy for me, but following in their nose for something interesting is absolutely a genetic trait of dogs. And to deny that is uh, criminal. Sorry, it's true. You need to allow your dog to exercise that natural genetic behavior that is part and parcel of this animal. Okay, let's go down the rabbit hole of alpha theory. I didn't want to, but I'm going to because I'm a stud that way. Anyway, uh, so from time to time, I will hear people tell me that they realize that their dog needs to be quote unquote dominated, that they need to be alpha quote unquote of their dog. Um, And then others who are like, no, no, the alpha theory has been debunked. So here's the facts. The alpha theory was designed, no, discovered, I guess, created, named, whatever, by a gentleman in the 1940s on with wolves. However, the wolves were captive. The wolves were in an incredibly tiny enclosure Enclosure, and the wolves were not related. So that's kind of not how wolves really are. That would be like looking at a prison and saying, this is what humans are. Uh, not really a thing. So as the years have passed and, We've been able to research wolves in the wild. We've discovered that, do- that wolves do not dominate one another like prisons, right? I mean, think about how uh, we imagine people in prisons hang out versus how people in society hang out. Uh, those are vastly different. Uh, same with wolves in comp- captivity that are not related versus wolves in the wild who are in fact related. So the, the way a wolf pack works, and again, our dogs aren't wolves, but I will go over this briefly. Is that there is a male and female; those are the parents, literally. So the reason the rest of the wolf pack obeys, quote unquote, the parents is because they're the parents and they know where they're going and they know how to hunt and they know what they're doing. Uh, the parents do not subjugate and or dominate uh, their puppies any more than hopefully we don't subjugate and or dominate our kids. The kids listen because the parents know what they're talking about, and parents do create punishers in the event that the kids have gone rogue, as it were, but they are not all day, every day trying to assert their quote unquote dominance. Uh, The puppies follow them because they're freaking puppies. So that's the first thing. Um, Wolves themselves do not have an alpha and a beta necessarily, as we've learned to establish that, that concept. And the words are no longer used in the scientific literature. That is how debunked that theory is. Second, and this is kind of an important distinction. Dogs are not wolves. Dogs, uh, when we look at village dogs, dogs actually do not form packs with conspecifics. That is uh, other dogs. They don't do that in the quote-unquote wild anymore. So dogs are not members of a pack in any way, shape, or form in the the wild as village dogs. Uh, They have a loose association that uh, again, we don't have to hunt. So if you don't have to hunt, there's really no reason to form a cohesive group to do the hunting. In the household, do dogs need a leader? Yes, they need a leader. Ideally, the leader is you. But the leader is not a raving maniac who constantly flips the dog upside down and or quote unquote shows it who's boss. That is not a sane leader. That is a dictator. And we just generally as a rule don't like those kinds of people. A leader is somebody who takes the team in the correct direction. Think football field quarterback versus Mussolini. Okay, there's a kind of a difference there. So alpha theory was debunked in wolves and dogs aren't wolves. So I hope that puts that whole thing to bed. Additionally, when you have an animal that was bred to cooperate and is genetically predisposed to cooperation, it seems kind of inappropriate to take that animal's natural instincts towards cooperation and smash a snot out of it by being an intimidating jerk. So one of the interesting features of domestication, and especially the domestication of the dog, is something called, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, neotenization. So what neotenization means is the retainment into adulthood of childlike features. The best way to describe that or to imagine it is to look at many of our smaller breed dogs with the giant eyes and the kind of smooshed faces and the softer features versus like a wolf. If you look at that, you you see puppy-like morphologic features retained into adulthood. Uh, dogs play longer than wolves. Dogs uh, retain curiosity and openness to new experience longer than wolves. All of those are traits that would be seen in a young animal but not retained to adulthood. Another interesting trait that we see in dogs that we do not see in adult wolves is barking. Uh, Barking is a part of being a juvenile wolf, but it is not part of being an adult wolf. Whereas in dogs, obviously, we see barking as a behavior that is retained into adulthood. Barking likely served a very important function for our early ancestors and that would have been to alert us to strangers and monsters approaching our camp as discussed earlier. Um, that would be a logical reason to retain that behavior. And because it comes part and parcel with the neotinizing effects of domestication, that's kind of a kind of a good deal for everybody concerned. However, nowadays, we look at barking as a horrific behavior that our dogs do that we'd rather them not do. And I understand that. Um, I am not a fan of a randomly barking dog. I just came from a dock diving competition where the dogs literally barked the entire day and somehow their handlers didn't notice. We're asleep at the wheel. I don't know. My dogs didn't bark because I can't stand it. But having said that, barking when it comes to alerting us to danger is an important part of being a dog. That's probably a behavior that if we didn't actually put into the dog through through planned breeding, we certainly wanted to retain um, in most dogs. I mean, there's a reason that almost all dogs bark. And that is because that would have been very helpful for us. And even for those folks still living in the country today, hearing a dog barking tells you there's somebody in the yard. If my dogs bark, I know there's one of two things happening. Either there's a vulture flying too low, which they find offensive, that's an aerial attack as far as they're concerned, or a vehicle driving up the drive. So I may not need to know about vulture activities, not really relevant to my life, but I do need to know if somebody's driving in the yard. So what do we do about barking dogs? If it's a genetic behavior and it's something that is intrinsic to being a dog, do we punish that behavior right at the start? Or do we become evicted from our house because our dog doesn't stop barking? I mean, how do we handle something that we see now as an intrinsic behavior that is part of being a dog, yet, however, does not gel well with the real world. And I'm going to tell you that I think there are a couple ways to approach this. First, we have to understand that alert barking is completely different from frustration barking and other other barking. And if your dog is barking, it's kind of a imperative that you understand why they're barking. Is there somebody at your door? Is uh, Do they want you to do something for them and therefore the demand barking? I mean, there's multiple reasons for a dog to bark. Just because they have a tool doesn't mean that they're only going to use it for one one thing if your dog barks to tell you that there's something outside my rule of thumb is because my understanding is that this is a behavior that we human beings certainly retained in the dog and we wanted to see in many dogs i thank them thank you for telling me about the vulture incursion on my property i appreciate your input now you may stand down because i again I'm the leader not the alpha. I am the leader. And as the leader of the clan, I can look outside and say, yep, it's a vulture and there's no imminent threat. I appreciate your input. I appreciate you alerting me. You've done a fantastic job. It's now in my hands and I've got control. So I think that we can thread the needle between living in a current modern society with this ancient animal that we produced over tens of thousands of years when we weren't modern animals either, and Allowing them to be dogs. So let's talk about digging, which is where this whole conversation started oh, so many minutes ago. Is digging a natural behavior in dogs? I'm going to say yes. It is absolutely a natural behavior in dogs. Not every dog, but most dogs who have it, that behavior is intrinsic and part of being a dog. And I say that because I never taught a dog to dig. I doubt anybody here has really taught a dog to dig. So we know it's part of the dog. And if your dog likes to dig, do you just surrender your dog, your yard to your dog? i don't think that's necessary but i also don't think putting a shock collar on your dog and hiding in the window and lighting them up every time they dig is appropriate either there is absolutely a right way to do this to help them feel fulfilled in their natural urge to look for critters or what have you underground or to find cooler space because that's important to understand as well i live in the desert and most of the holes that my dogs dig are trying to find cooler ground so an easy way for me to solve that problem would be to simply hose down an area in the shade and create a little bit of mud and it'd be nice and cool and they'd like that. Um, if they're looking for critters, then I'm go town. My, my best wishes to you because we're in granite and you're never going to catch it and you're not going to be able to dig a hole anyway. But having said that, give your dog a location where your dog can do the thing they like to do and let them do it there. Does it have to be in your yard? Not necessarily. Uh, I take my dogs out into the woods and they find critter homes and they go berserk. They love digging holes and looking for vermin. And their intensity is awesome. I love watching their intensity. They're like just con- watching their body language. You'd think that varmint is literally half an inch below the ground, like taunting them. They are oh for a, a thousand on catching a varmint. So uh, no harm, no foul. Other than the varmint having to spend time rebuilding their housing. I don't know how important that is to the varmint. So anyway, understanding what our dogs bring to the table intrinsically, I think is relevant and important to understanding what it is that they need from us, because this has to be a two-way street. We are in this relationship, not just to have our dogs serve us, but for us to serve our dogs. And again, it's not about quitting your job and becoming a slave to your dog and never letting them or never doing anything fun ever again because your dog. I live a totally full life and a wonderful life that does not always involve my dogs. However, having said that, The parts of the life that the dogs find intrinsically necessary, I'm definitely going to have to meet. It's inappropriate and unfair and unethical to do otherwise. So when you look at your little dog, remember that part of your little dog is a wolf, but all of your dog is a dog and they are different and the same. And that it's important that we understand what pieces of those we have to meet and what pieces of that we have to respect. And where it makes sense and where it doesn't. Um, I hope that made sense. I hope this wasn't too much of a rambling disaster. Happy training. If you like this podcast, please like, listen, share. I don't even remember all the crap. There's a lot of words. Happy training and I'll talk to you all later. Bye.